Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go ahead and mark your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. The message title tonight is Down on the Farm. And you go, oh boy, here we go. Well, you're kind of right. But a lot of the New Testament, in fact, most of the Bible, is centered around agriculture. Um, it's just the way things were. It's, uh, they were more in touch. They were more green, so to speak, than we are today. Well, it reminded me when I was a young kid. Um, my dad was a preacher. Liked to preach a lot. He never had a job as a preacher, but he liked to preach to us kids. No, I'm just joking. He had actually had a preaching job. They called him pastor. Well, um, as you know, most of us, when we get into our 40s, and um, we tend to look for stress relievers, don't we? We want to say, you know, I need to kind of slow things down. The doctor says, you know, you need to reduce your stress. And so it was about that time in my dad's life, and he decided that he would go out and buy a hog farm. To be a stress reliever for pastoring a church. Now, I, I mean, you know, the Bible calls um, Jesus' children the sheep of his pasture. And sheep seem a lot better than hogs. But that was his design. In fact, he loved it. And I had two older brothers that he would send out there and, and to take care of the hog pen and to clean it up. And I loved going out there when they were there because undoubtedly I would get in some type of trouble. Well, my mom had taken me to town and bought me a brand new pair of red tennis shoes. You ever get those when you're a kid? Nice pair of Keds, red with the, with the white rim around the top, perfection. I was a country kid. We didn't get too many shoes, you know. Imagine me in those sort of hillbilly boots with the toes sticking out, that kind of thing. But I got a brand new pair of red shoes and she said, now I'm going to let you out and you boys bring him home. But I'm telling you, if he gets anything on those shoes, I'm going to kill you both. Now, my mom was a God-fearing woman, but she meant it when she said you'd kill us. She'd, I've seen her do it before. I mean, I mean, she's 87 now, and I guess all the laws have passed and all of that. But uh, there's a couple of my friends that went missing. So when she said it, she meant it. Well, my brothers, immediately, when she was just down the road, they said, Okay, Dave, you want to ride a pig? I said, Of course. It's all that we always do when we're out here. I was about six years old, just perfect size to get on a big pig and ride it through the pig pen. And so the first round through, I did pretty good. And they, you know, they'd bet to see how long I'd stay on the pig, kind of like a betting rodeo. And uh, first time I made it through, I landed in the hard dirt. Everything's fine. But as fate would have it, or at least my destiny would have it, the second time around wasn't so good. The pig began to buck. I began to zig and zag, and it zagged when I zigged. And uh, all of a sudden, I can remember my arms reaching out like this. The pig stopped abruptly, and I was grasping in the air and somehow managed to land both face and feet first into the biggest pile of pig waller, which is mud, water, and manure together. Now, my brothers thought that this was probably about the funniest thing that they'd ever seen. And they laughed and laughed, and me being a six-year-old, looking down at my red, mud-covered shoes, I cried and I cried, and they laughed and I cried, and it was kind of not fun. But then when we got home, and we got closer to the house, one of my older brothers, thinking he would use his mind powers on me, said, what are you going to tell mom about what you did to her shoes? And he almost had me. When I got in the house, she saw my shoes, I began to cry, she looked at my brothers, and then pretty soon, after she began to lay into them pretty good with her words, their faces went down in a frown, and mine went up in a big smile. <laughs> so who's laughing now, big guys? Now, the reason I tell you that story is just sort of a funny story. It has nothing to do with the message tonight. There will be no hogs, nor mud, nor red tennis shoes in our message tonight. 
Tonight we're going to focus in on the agricultural side of things, the side that deals with growing and maturity. God desires that you and I grow spiritually. Scripture's full of it. We're told page after page that God is very interested in our growth and that we have fruit and that our fruit remain. God is very interested in our maturity and that He is interested in the investment that He has made in our lives. Here's the way it went. Because they were so green and so in touch with their world, the the world revolved around something like this. If it doesn't rain, you don't plant. If you don't plant, nothing grows. If nothing grows, there's no harvest. And if there's no harvest, you don't survive. For not very long anyway. That's how it went. If it doesn't rain, you don't plant. If you don't plant, it doesn't grow. And if it doesn't grow, you don't harvest. And if you don't harvest, you don't have life. It's not like you can go down the street and say, Well, the Piggly Wiggly closed down. What are we going to do? That'll take a few of you back. I don't know. (laughs) What are we going to do? Well, we'll just go down to the Safeway or the Albertsons. I know you're thinking that I've been shopping back in the 60s, but I actually have been to a grocery store in the last 10 years. What are you going to do? Well, that's what you do. But to them, it meant everything. Jesus spoke to them in verse 3 in parables saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the wayside, and the birds came and they devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was there, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, to us city folks, you read something like this and you say, that's a nice story. You know what? Jesus was a pretty good storyteller, wasn't he? It's easy to see that. But the people who heard him on the day that he was speaking this, they were receiving automatically because he was speaking, he was speaking about their very existence, especially on the northwestern end of the Sea of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight once again to eat at your table, to open up the book, your word, and present ourselves to you, to your Holy Spirit, to implant your word deep into our hearts and to our minds so that we would receive it and grow and be nourished, challenged, convicted, Whatever your spirit wants, whatever the need is, we open ourselves up to you tonight to do that work. Lord, we pray for our friends and family and especially our our pastor, Lord, who is in Israel. We pray that you keep them, Lord, and that you would show them wonderful things and that you bring them safely home to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little background I think is necessary. Look with me at verse 1. On the same day they went out of the house, he went out of the house and sat by the sea. On the same day. Now, it had been a very busy day if you peek back into chapter 12. A very action-packed period of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It was a time of not only popularity, but a time of opposition. Popularity. During this time, what scholars tell us are called the Middle Galilean period of Jesus' ministry, Jesus had become so popular that crowds, hundreds and even thousands at times, were known to come to him and to hear him speak and to watch him teach people and to train people and not only do that, but heal people and, and do miracles before their very eyes. Some people came for the healing. In fact, if you'll go back to chapter 12 and read through it, he, he healed everyone that came to him 
during that period. He didn't turn anyone away. He imagined, there's a guy up the street who will lay his hands on you and you'll be healed. Listen, in a, in a time and era when there were no medical doctors, this was very welcome. So a lot of people showed up because they had physical ailment. Other people came because just because of the teaching. You know, people would listen to him. And, and as he stated over in Matthew during the, in the Beatitudes, after he gave that great sermon on the Mount Beatitudes, we are told that the people commented about this by saying, he's not like the f- scribes and Pharisees. Because when he teaches, he speaks as one having authority. He speaks as one having great power and authority. Jesus, even speaking to his disciples after preaching a very unpopular sermon and a lot of people went away, he said, will you leave also? And they said, no way. Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. People that were there because somehow they knew that they were being touched. Other people came for miracles. They wanted to see God work. They wanted to see a sign for God. From God. They wanted to know that maybe God was really among them. And then the rest were sort of the curious, onlookers, wondering who this person was. Is it really true what they say about him? Not only was he popular, but he was receiving opposition at this point. Chapter 12 is a good example of his observation. That's a new word right there. Just write it down. Observation. You'll have to Google it tonight. Okay. His opposition from religious leaders. Verse 1 through 14, you see Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields in Galilee. And as they do so, they would grab a little head of grain, which people normally did. It was perfectly legal to do this. And they would take their hands, rub off the husk of, of the wheat, and then have the, the kernel in there, pop it in and have a little snack along the way. The problem is that they were doing it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders were watching. Oh, you can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Well, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What? This is work? Come on, buddy. We live in an agrarian society. All of us have to work hard. This isn't hard work. But yet, during that period, religious activity and the rules had just overgrown the spirituality of the people of that day. You could only walk so many steps so that it wouldn't be considered work. You could only pick up so much grain or do so much uh, activity with your hands so that it wouldn't be considered work. And, And Jesus responds by saying, wait a minute. Haven't you heard what King David, your king, did when he was hungry? He went into the tabernacle and took the showbread, which was just set aside for the priest. He ate it and and fed himself. Aren't these men worth more than that? They didn't like that. A little bit later, we see him uh, notice a man who had a withered hand. They brought him to him. And they they wondered against themselves, well, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath? You know, that's working. What? I mean, who doesn't want to go to a healing service on Sunday? I mean, come on, man. That's what you go to church for. But yet, they had so many laws, so many things tagging them down. There was no hope. So, he stretched out his hand and Jesus healed him. And they began to murmur and say, You're not allowed to do that. This is on the Sabbath. You're working. And he said, How many of you, if you had a little lamb that fell into a hole or a pit, surely you would reach in and pull it out. Isn't this man worth more Then one of your sheep? Now at this point, things get heated up. Because at this point they say, you know what? Let's kill him. This, right after this, they plotted together as to how they would kill him and put him to death. Not very popular. Well, later on, he heals a demon-possessed man. And they come to him and say, well, sorry if I use this accent, if there are any British folk here. Just get over it. Okay? Well, you know, he heals by the prince of the demons, Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. Jesus, I love his indignance. He responds by saying, what? Now, I mean, he didn't actually say that, but that's what I get from the text. He says, I'm going to cast out demons 
by the prince of demons? Don't you know that if a house is divided, it falls? Why would Satan cast out his own people? Duh! Doesn't it not make sense? And if I cast demons out by the prince of demons, who do your exorcists cast demons out by? And then he began to really lay into them. And he talked about their fruit. Good fruit only comes from good trees. Basically, he was insinuating that they were bad trees and they only produced bad fruit. And this is what he said. He said, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Man, Jesus wasn't making any inroads with this group of people. He was getting more unpopular moment by moment by moment. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story. I may be one of the few people in the world who has actually killed a whole group of vipers, a whole brood of vipers. One day, one afternoon in West Texas, I killed a whole brood of vipers. I'll tell you how it happened. I was 15, and we like to go dove hunting. During dove hunting season, it's usually in the fall. We find some field or a, a, a big tank or a, an abandoned house, and we pull up there and rustle up the weeds and wait for the uh, doves to come in and usually shoot our supper. Very good to eat. They're not as good as quail, but they're okay. I know you see them flying around town and think, who would eat them? Well, you know, I would. That's it. Well, anyway, we were out hunting dove, and, and my buddy was about... 10 feet away from me, and all of a sudden we hear this rattling. And the kind of rattle that when you're in West Texas, it sends shivers all the way up of you and you turn completely white because you know it's a rattlesnake. And then you remember, ah, I've got a magic wand in my hand, a 12-grade shotgun. Awesome. You see it? Yeah, I do. Boom. Man, that's awesome. And then pretty soon, in a matter of just five minutes, we killed three rattlesnakes. At that point, I was really jittery and kind of scared, thinking, you know, we ought to probably get back to the truck. But before we did, I heard this faint sound. It was rattling, buzzing, 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 buzzing. And we were right near an old gas pump and an old gas reservoir underneath it had long since dried out. We got our flashlight out of the truck, looked in there, and there was this brood of slithering, slimy rattlesnakes all rolling over the top of each other. The kind of sight that just, you know... Gross. So, I know you may report me. And this is on tape. And I'm sure I'll get a letter. But I did put my shotgun out into the hole of that thing and fire till there was no more buzzing and rattling anymore. And I felt very satisfied at that. Why? Because I hate, I hate poisonous snakes. I happen to have a great disdain for them. You know, I'm not one of those guys on television that likes to get the little, you know, metal stick with a little crook on it. And they said, all right, follow me as I play with a venomous snake. (laughs) The only snake uh, stick I want to poke at a snake is is the end of a 12 grade shotgun. That's the only thing that I feel safe with. Now, here's the point. The word that is Jesus uses here in this passage is for viper. It's not just for a snake, not a cute little garden snake and so forth. He's talking about a poisonous viper. And there's something very important to note here. Religious teachers and leaders that hate or oppose Jesus are venomous snakes. Let me say that again. Religious leaders that hate and oppose Jesus are venomous snakes full of deadly poison. And in Jesus' account, a a brood of vipers is something that you would avoid at all cost. And that was his point. If people got a hold of one of these things and they bit into them, their venom would go in and eventually they would die. And so it is with false religions. You ever wonder why people don't like Christianity? Well, it's because of Christians and they're so narrow-minded and they're so weird. No, it isn't. They've always been weird. We're the weird bunch. Right? All shapes and sizes. All colors. 
We're a weird crowd. But when God brings us together, it's something beautiful, isn't it? But what you'll notice is they always have a disdain for Jesus himself. They always have a disdain for him. He said, they'll hate you because they first, what? Hated me. Don't forget that. There's no real rational argument for hating Christians. You know, I love the the new terminology for tolerance. Tolerance is, you must receive every religion under the face of the earth, respect everyone except Christians. You can go ahead and throw stones, minimize their efforts, and persecute them throughout the world. Very hypocritical. All right. Now, as we come upon this day, we find Jesus in a house. Chapter 12, verse 46. And it's told to him that, hey, your mother and your brothers and sisters, they're outside, your family's outside. And he turns to them and he says, who are my family, in essence? Who are they? I tell you, he looked around at the crowd and he says, these are my brothers and my mother. My mother and my brothers. In verse 50, he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, my mother. Now, why do we go through all of that? Because this event that we're about to read in chapter 13 precipitates and and sets the stage, so to speak, of what Jesus is about to do. At this point, Jesus moves to the shoreline and says these words. Jesus went out of the house, chapter 1, and sat by the sea, and a great multitude gathered together to him, So that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spoke many things to them in parables. Here's the scene. Jesus left the house. The crowds follow him down to the shore. As they do so, uh, I don't know if he's hard-pressed or but wants to get a better place to speak to them, but it doesn't say how many, but uh, multitude seems like a lot, a lot of people. They showed up. He pulls out in a boat, sits down, and he begins to speak to them. And he speaks to them in a parable or a story. Now, why parables, you ask? Many of you familiar with the term parable? It comes from a Greek noun, uh, parabole, which means to place one thing alongside the other. The verb form of this word is parabolo, and it means to throw beside one thing right beside another in juxtaposition. Um, It is a narrative that's true to nature, true to life, and it's used for the purpose of conveying spiritual truth to the mind of the hearers. So a parable is something that's laid alongside uh, a spiritual truth right here and right over here, an earthly thing like a field or grain or so forth. And he lays a spiritual truth alongside. And in doing so, he increases the learning curve, not only intellectually, but spiritually for the believer. Great, powerful, profound way of teaching. All right? Um, As one Sunday school teacher put it this way, I think we'll sum it up. An earthly story with heavenly meaning. It is an earthly story with heavenly meaning. All right, the outline for tonight's message, you can write this down if you'd like to, is first of all, the telling of the story. That'll be verse 3 through 9. Second of all, the, the, the reason for the story, verse 10 through 17. And thirdly, the explanation of the story, verse 18 through 23. And finally, the power of the story, um, retelling that as well. Look with me at verse 3 through 9, the telling of the story. We just read this a few minutes ago, and a lot of you probably already have it memorized by heart. But I want you to notice something. It starts out with one bookend and ends with another bookend. The first one is in in verse 3, the word behold. And the last one is in verse 9, where it says, He who has ear to hear, let him hear. Now the word behold is is an interesting word to translate because it's not just, Hello, may I have your attention? In fact, it was so commonly used in connection with a good story that one of the commentators that I read this week said that it could very well be said that Jesus said it like this, once upon a time. 
Not those exact words, but the hearers of his day would have realized that that's what he was saying. Once upon a time. You know, whenever you hear once upon a time, what happens to you? (sighs) Great. Immediately, I'm a five-year-old kid ready to listen to a story. Once upon a time. I never get old or too too old for that or too tired for it. It's always sparks up the curiosity of our minds. Now, the setting were the fields around the region in which Jesus spoke. I wish you could be in Israel today because you could see this more plainly. But this is the way it worked. Farmers mostly did everything by hand with a few exceptions. Uh, They would take a small, narrow strip of land and they would get a a pitchfork or a a tool and, and turn over the ground so that it broke up, so to speak. And there were two methods of planting. The first method was manual. You took a sack of grain and you took it in your hand and you broadcast it on either side of you and thereby planted all the seeds. The second method, which it was interesting to me, one commentator, William Barclay, stated it was the lazy way of doing it. They would take a donkey and put a sack of grain on the side of it, cut a little slit out of it, and then send it down the row and lead it down the row. And he said this was the lazy way. And I thought first, I thought to myself, that man had never been farming. That ain't lazy. That's called a tractor right there. That was the first tractor. I mean, the guy I worked for growing up, the farmer I had, worked for, would have had about three donkeys out there, two bags on either sides, two teams running them. We'd get through with a section of grain and a section of land before the end of the day. But that's the way they did it. That's the picture that he's saying here. Now, the other end of this is he who has ears, let him hear. Not only does he start by saying, give me your attention. Once upon a time, listen to what I have to say. He finishes the story off with, he who has ears, let him hear. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, puts it this way. The man who has ears to hear should use them. The New Living Translation, very good, I love it. says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. In other words, to the person that is really listening and wanting truth... Please let him understand and take it in. Let me, let me repeat that. To the person, this is what he was saying, to the person who that's really listening and the person that really wants truth, he says, let him please understand and take it in. That's our prayer every time we get together in a Bible study. Not only that we would be hearers of the word, but as James says, we would become doers of the word, not deceiving ourselves, Right? Real doers of the word of God. That's what he was saying here. Now, me, when I listen to this, I think this is the perfect call to a lost and hurting world. If there ever was a call to the lost, a call to the hurting, a call to the searching, this would be it. You know, we're often criticized for being, I don't know, for trying to convert people. You're always trying to convert people over to your religion. Why can't you just leave them alone? Well, the truth is, Jesus stood before a very mixed crowd of people, told the same story, and he says to him, he ends off the story by saying, whoever has ears, that is, whoever of you out there is desiring truth and wants to know truth, you understand and take it in. That's a perfect call to the world. Not everybody's going to listen. Not everyone will hear the truth. Not everyone cares to hear the truth. But to those of you who are listening, to those of you who have ears, he says, take it in, receive it, and understand it. Different types of people listening to that story that day. We've mentioned a few. There was the religious leaders. They were haters. You had the selfish and the shallow, the people who were showing up, asking the question, what's in it for me? And then you had the true seekers of God. Which brings us to our next point, the question, why did he speak in parables? We know what parables are now, but why did he use them? Look with me for the reason of the story in verse 10. The disciples said, why do you speak in parables? And he said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Why parables? Because 
They do two distinct two things simultaneously. Number one, they reveal truth. And second of all, they hide truth. Parables reveal truth and they hide truth right at the same time, the same way. First of all, they reveal truth to the seeker, to the believer. This story is a beacon of light. Um, It is a shining uh, light that shines into the heart of mankind. He says here that you disciples who are closer to him, possibly in the boats with him, he says to you, here's the scene. You have the crowds there, you have the disciples closely, and one of them turns and says, hey, you're speaking to them in parables. What's going on? This is different. I mean, I'm not that sharp, but I notice that things have changed just a little bit. And he says, listen, to you guys, it's been given to know the mysteries of heaven. What is he talking about there? The Greek word that is used is mysterion. And he's not speaking about some mystery, look into the pot, Harry Potter, you know, none of that. It's not that kind of mystery. A mystery, in biblical terms, especially in the New Testament, is Scripture... Previously hidden truth, scripturally previously hidden truth that is now divinely revealed. A a truth that before someone would scratch their head and go, I don't really know what you're talking about. All of a sudden has been revealed before their very eyes. So no longer it is a mystery hidden, it is a mystery revealed. And that's what he said to his disciples. To you it's been a mystery that's been revealed. What a privilege. What an honor. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. He whoever seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Here's a point. God never disappoints the true seeker. Note that. God never disappoints the true seeker. Somebody will say, well, you know, I've sought after God. I tried the church thing. I tried the Christian thing. But, you know, it didn't work for me. That's why I'm back at the bars, bro. Found my home. It's like my own little cheers, man. I guarantee you, that guy still hasn't found what he's looking for. He still hasn't found it yet. True seekers, the one who honestly come before God and say, God, I want to know you, I want to know truth, and I'll lay all of my predispositions down and I'll follow you. If you pursue God in that way, I guarantee you, you'll never be disappointed in Him. Oh, you might have times of trouble, but you'll never be disappointed in truth. All the years of my life as a believer, I've been disappointed by a lot of things. But I've never been disappointed in the pursuit of the knowledge of the truth of God's Word. There's always more. There's always deeper waters. It never fails. Here's the second point. You and I, everyone needs spiritual eyes and ears to see spiritual things. We all need spiritual eyes and ears to see spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you can write this down, look it up later. Verse 12 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words with man's wisdom, teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. There's the contradiction comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life can give them true understanding of the message of the Bible. You think, I'm having a hard time getting this, man. I've been coming for a while. Well, we may give you a chance later on to make that correction. There is a vast difference between a person who has been born of the Spirit of God and a person who has never been born in Christ. The person who has been born of the Spirit of God now has spiritual eyes, even though the maturation process is a growth process that takes time, but there is an immediate apprehension of truth. Just like a brand new baby that comes out of the womb. You think, how does this thing know how to eat? Nobody taught it. I don't think it read an instruction manual before it got out. 
but you put it close to a bottle or to its mother's breast, and what happens? Boom. Immediately, that sucking response to sustain life is there. And that's the point. If it may be milk for the brand new believer, there may be meat for the older believer, but there is this longing and desire and an an immediate apprehension of the value of the truth of this word and this message. All right. The second reason for parables is this. Not only to reveal truth, the first one, but secondly, to hide truth. To the selfish, the unbelieving in that crowd, this story is hidden for three reasons. First of all, it was to protect the truth from the scoffers. Now, I know that the truth doesn't necessarily be, need to be protected, but it doesn't need to be scoffed at or mocked either. In fact, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He says, Don't give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He wasn't going to reveal deep spiritual truth to people who had no desire for it, to people who hated him, to people who hated the things of God. If you're in a position tonight of finding yourself hating the things of God and hating God, wonder why you're in church. But if you are, um, you're not going to receive anything at any time of any substantial count from the kingdom of heaven. You just won't get it. It won't make any sense to you. Because God's word is precious. It needs to be treated as so. Secondly, not only to protect the, the, the scriptures, the truth and the scoffers, at this point, the second reason that he hides it is to protect the scoffers from the truth. God's word is not only powerful, but it's gracious. Um, one of the men that I read this week uh, had a very profound thought, I, I, I believe. He said, by concealing the truth from his unbelieving crit- critics, Jesus was showing them grace. How? He said, they were saved from the guilt of rejecting the truth, for they were not allowed to recognize it. Because that is a profound measure of God's grace. Isn't that nice? Each one of us will give an account for the truth that we understand. Did you know that? You go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I've been taking Bible notes for years. I'm going to have to go home and, and bone up on these things and, and, and there might be a test. We are held accountable for the light and the knowledge that we have. But to do so to a group that were scoffing at him, to give them that light would also bring them under condemnation, seeing as how they rejected that light. They would be even more accountable for their actions that they had taken. And then thirdly, we're told, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Look with me at verse 13, verse 14 of chapter 13. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and shall not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. He fulfilled Scripture, prophesied long ago about His coming, this very event. Here's a principle when encountering the Word of God. Whenever we encounter the Word of God, here's a principle that we need to understand. Whoever has, as the Scripture states, to him more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. At first, when I read that years ago, I thought, now that seems a little selfish. You mean, Jesus, if people are going to show up for a Bible study and those who don't even have any knowledge, you're going to take away whatever they have? That's kind of harsh, don't you think? Here's the idea. The person who has a little knowledge will come away from some teaching like this and go, wow! 
That was amazing. Did you hear that? That was amazing. In fact, I probably would have been one of those guys in the back of the crowd. I, I mean, I grew up on a farm, but typically I'm more hippie in nature. I probably would have been more like, whoa, man, did you hear that? That's crazy, man. That blew my mind. Can you believe the science that this guy's dropping on us right here? This is crazy. I never heard anything like this. This is killer, man. I'm going to go out and buy me a, a brand new scroll or something. Bonded leather at first. Save up for the genuine leather later. But the person who hears has more. But to the person who has just a little bit, they walk away with, huh? Now I'm even more confused than when I first came. And that's the point. That's the power of God existing simultaneously. All right. Look with me at verse 18. And we come to the third part of our message, the explanation of the story. So therefore, hear the parable of the sower. If anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one who received the seed by the wayside. A couple of things to note, a couple of things to define. First of all, he tells us in this passage what the seed represents. The seed represents the word of the kingdom or literally the message of the kingdom of heaven. Because right now, Jesus uses the terminology of the kingdom all throughout his teaching during this time. Why? Because there are two kingdoms in conflict. You have the kingdom that runs this world, and then you have the kingdom of heaven now coming to the earth, being among mankind, setting up his reign here on this planet. And then you have the soil. The soil represents the condition of a person's heart, especially in respect to the things of God. All right. There's four types, four types of soil represented here. There is only one type of seed. You get that? One type of seed, the same seed, but four types of soil. That is, there is somewhat of an equal playing field for all of those various types of hearts that receive it. All right. The first person is the hard soil or the hard heart. And this represents two kinds of people. This is, if you were looking back in Jesus' day, you would see a little field that had been plowed, a guy out there sowing seed, and as he broadcast some of it, it would fall upon a pathway. In between all of these uh, litany of, of fields that were strewn together all along that area, you would have little intricate pathways that everybody would walk down so as not to damage the plants. In doing so, they would pack the dirt down with every step that they took. And as... He said some of the seed would fall upon that hard ground. You can just see it bouncing off the top of it. In doing so, the birds come along and they begin to eat and feed off of it. I don't know if you've ever drove a tractor, but that's what happened every day in my life every summer. We'd be out there driving tractor, always looking back, looking forward, looking back, looking forward, looking back. That's why my neck doesn't work very good today. Look forward, looking back. And pretty soon, you're turning up enough ground and seeds that the birds, the crows, show up out in the field and start munching on everything that you turn up. It's a great place, a great place for nutrition for these guys. The first person is that dead person, dead to the message of the kingdom of God. This person is not born again, not, no conversion, no life, no ability to hear from God. The word of God hits that person, boom, bing, bounces high in the sky, and before it has a chance to go anywhere, the evil one snatches it away. There's a second type of person, though. This other person is, is someone who has heard the message. Their mind is dulled. They've heard it all. They've been there. They've done that. And the callousing effect of sin and selfishness has their heart and mind so that it cannot receive the word of God. They've been around it so much that they've become calloused to the very word of God that they used to feast upon. You can't expect to grow or have growth where there is no seed. 
If no seed penetrates, if nothing germinates, there will be absolutely zero growth. Seeds need to be planted in moist, soft, loosened soil, fertile soil, in order to grow. That was the process. Every year, we'd wait for the spring rain to come. As it did so, the ground would get enough moisture in it. And the old farmer I worked for, he'd say, you think it's ready to plant, Dave? I'd say, yep, I think we're good. And he'd get out there, fill his bins up with, with, with um, seed, and began to go out and plant. And the hope was is that the, the, the ground was warm enough and the soil was wet enough so that when that seed went down into the ground and it was covered over by a thin layer of, of dirt, that there would be enough moisture in there that it would begin to rot and to germinate and all the genetic material could then be released from the shell and the kernel of that seed. It began to work its way to the top and eventually become a plant and eventually bear fruit. That's the whole point. This person could be considered as a nominal Christian. Name only, no life. Just like a tombstone. Name only, but no life. I love what Dr. J. Vernon McGee said about these folks. He said, these folks are in a deep freeze, my friends. <laughs> Second, there is the shallow soil or a shallow heart. Look at verse 20. But he who had received the seed on the stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately stumbles. Here's the problem. The seed grew up, but because in that land it was very often the the, the case, a very stony rock bed with maybe a couple of inches of dirt over it. There was no way for the roots to go down. And because there was no roots, it sprang up immediately. It came up quickly. Oh, it's wonderful. We have great plants. But it didn't last. They have no root, so they have no fruit, no staying power. It's a short-lived life. Again, quoting J. Vernon McGee, because it's pretty funny. He calls them Alka-Salsa Christians. They got lots of fears, but they never last long. Alka-Seltzer Christians. This person expects to get a great lot from God. A great deal from Him. But the moment that God doesn't deliver in the exact way that He expected, He's out of there. Or because of persecution. Or because of some type of conviction that demands something from Him in His life. He says, that's it. I'm done. I'm moving on at the first sight of trouble. This is a casual Christian they don't stay very long, and they only stay as long as it suits their needs. Third group we find in verse 22, thorny soil, weedy heart. Now he who receives seeds among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. This person has a root, but no room for growth. In every field, there is a raging battle going on over available nutrients. Farmers do all they can to keep the weeds away from what they plant and put in the earth. First of all, you clear the land, you get it all out of there, you clear out all the weeds, you send out workers like myself. As a young man, I went out and hoed and chopped up the weeds. And then you you send big farm implements in throughout the year to maintain because they want to keep all of the weeds away from their money crop. Why do they do that? Because every weed, by the way, no one ever wants a weed. No one ever wants to put a, a weed in a salad. I've seen a few people try to put them in salads in high-dollar restaurants, but I look at it and go, hey, what? this is a weed, man. What are you talking about? (laughs) But nobody loves weeds. Why? Because we have a money crop or a real fruit-producing crop, and the weed takes only for itself, sort of like a tumor does. It's a growth, but it's a malignant growth that draws valuable nutrients away from from the plant that is actually going to produce the fruit. This is what happens when a normal, when the normal in life 
and the good chokes out that which is best. This is what happens to our lives when the normal and the good chokes out what's best. I think this describes the American and describes the thing that I struggle most with more than anything. Sown among thorns, sown among weeds. Really. That's, that's where I live. Life is complicated for us. And in our society, just driving the, the family to all of their events and, and getting all the food on the table and make sure you got plenty of cash in your pocket whenever they come around and ask for stuff. Girls. Um, all of that, with our family of six, is enough to choke a horse. I get cranky. Now, this is how the conversation goes at my house. My kids say, well, Dad, you're supposed to be patient with us. That's what the Bible says. And my response is something, well, it's verbatim. Um, I'm about to bust your rear. How about that? Kidra says, well, that's not in the Bible. And I say, I know it's not. It's in the first book of Daddy. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1. I shall kick your tail or bust your ear. Now, God desires the best for us, right? But the blessings that we've been given, which are many, don't let the blessings turn into curse. Sometimes, isn't it great that God gave us this big screen TV? It's awesome. Isn't it great that God gave us this like, like four-room kitchen over here? It's awesome. And isn't it great that God gave us 15 cars? It's awesome. Until the kitchen breaks down. Cars start to break down. Um, you're starting to pay a lot of more money. And all of a sudden, that thing that was a blessing begins to choke out all the good that it was intended to be. And it becomes something of a curse to us. And I think that's a real struggle for us as believers in our world. We have so much available to us that it chokes out the best. God's best is not you running about, being weird, involved in a million different things, totally freaked out, and being happy that you're, you're doing something. I took the kids today to 15 sports events. Praise God. We're so blessed. Really? If they outlawed soccer, I wouldn't care. Nobody under the age 21. No illegal soccer. Good. Keep all those minivans. I mean, you want to go green? Send all those minivans back to the house. Not taking those kids everywhere. Save about $500 a month anyway. Then there's a fourth type of soil, and that's what we're trying to get to. That's the good soil. That's the fertile heart. This person is open and ready to receive the word of God and their lives produce fruit and their fruit is lasting. But he who received the seed from the good ground, he who has ears to hear the word and understand it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. That's God's desire for us. That the seed that he placed in us would bear fruit. Not our own concoction, not our own minds. But the seed of the message of the truth that is constantly being broadcast into our heart. That that would take hold. And that you would bear fruit and it would remain. John chapter 15 verse 8 says this. By this, he, Jesus said, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and that... You will be my disciples. Goes on to say in verse 16 of that same chapter, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give to you. Did you get that? It's the Father's desire that you and I bear fruit, that we bear a lot of fruit, and that our fruit remains. If you've ever been around an orchard, there are those trees that are always have the best apples. 
You guys ever go down to Dixon? Years I lived in Taos, and, and I knew all of the best trees in Taos County. And eventually made friends with everybody who had the best trees. But uh, during that certain time of the year, everybody would call, We got apples again. Like, okay, I'll be right over. Is that same tree in the back? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it still that? Yeah, yeah. Has anyone picked it? No. Okay, good. I'll be right over. Because there were certain trees that just had this awesome, savory, sweet, crunchy apples that I wanted to have a part of. And year after year after year, that same tree produced the best fruit. That's what he's talking about. A consistent life that produces stuff that isn't burned up and cast away, worthless, but is something that remains, is something of great eternal value. Good soil is well watered, soft, open, cleared of weeds and ready for planting. Seeds and plants both grow quick in this environment and so do Christians. Christians grow best in an environment that is open hearts, broken up soil, turned over and open, ready to receive the implanted word. If your life is closed like this to the things of God, you will never, never get anything out of the Bible or church or God. Never. It'll never happen. If you have no root in you, and you like to come to church, and it feels pretty good, and I kind of like the songs... And I came for a healing service, but then I'm out of here a couple of weeks later. God took care of me, so I'm done. If you have no root in you, if your Christianity is only a couple of inches deep, you're never going to produce fruit. Because real fruit requires a root that goes down deep. Taking vital nutrients and building the top. If you're a person whose life is cluttered with things, so much so that it chokes out every bit of nutrient and time and effort that you have, that when it comes to the thing of God, it's literally withering on the vine and ready to die. But if you're a person that's open to the things of God, you're going to produce some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. I'm not trying to categorize or judge one group of people better than the other. But I think we all know which group we want to be in. Right? So here's my challenge to you tonight. The power of the story. Verse 18 through 23. The power is in the conviction, God's conviction and His grace. Hebrews says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul, the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's it. The conviction of God on your life is probably the greatest sense of grace that you could experience. If you right now say, man, I'm hard-hearted and I don't know God and I don't understand scriptural things. If you feel a hint of conviction of God that maybe you're not right, that is the grace of God on you right now because he loves you. And if you find yourself in the other two categories, anywhere in there, and you say, Dave, my life isn't right. I'm not really serving Him. I'm not really growing the way that I should. And if someone asks you, are you satisfied with the fruit that you're producing? Is your life producing the fruit of godliness or is it drying up on the vine? You'd have to say, actually, it's probably drying up more than producing fruit. Then here's a challenge to you. Whichever one of you has ears or desire to know more and to get things right from God, hear and receive and take it in and grow. Father, I thank you for this evening. 
I thank you for my brothers and sisters and our time together. That you, Lord, are so faithful, so good, so gracious to constantly bring us back to center, to where you want us to be, to put us on track. And Lord, that's my prayer, not only for myself, but for my brothers and sisters. Lord, that we wouldn't be satisfied with anything less than your absolute best in our lives. And I pray for, Lord, this fellowship. We collectively, as believers, would bear that fruit. Lord, some of us 100, some of us 60, some 30. Lord, according to the measure that you have given each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.